From the Grand Reading Room in the Nashville Public Library, this is Just Conversations, Nashville Reads How to Be an Anti-Racist, presented by the Metro Human Relations Commission. Hi, my name is Jacqueline Favors, and I'm the Director of Health Equity at Health Leads. Today, I am here to welcome you to Just Conversations, Nashville Reads, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and filmed in the Grand Reading Room of the Nashville Public Library. I am joined here by my colleagues, and I'm gonna let everyone introduce themselves today. Uh, hi, I'm Mackenzie Houston, and I'm a Geographic Information Analyst, and I work in disaster response with communities at the national level. I'm Sir Jonathan Duncan. I work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs Eastern Regional Office, and uh, I work with all of the East Coast, fairly recognized tribes from Florida all the way up to Canadian border. My name is Cynthia Harris. Uh, I'm the Director of Programs and Outreach with the Tennessee Kidney Foundation. I'm also a playwright exploring art and public health. Well, today we're discussing Chapter 12 of How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And Chapter 12 is entitled Class. Uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi does a great job of opening the chapter and explaining and defining what is a class racist. And he also defines a term anti-racist, anti-capitalist. Um, so today we're gonna have a discussion about the chapter, um, what resonated with you. And I'm actually interested in hearing a little bit more, uh, first off on how you might describe the intersection of race and class. Um, so Cynthia, I think I might pass it to you. How might you describe the intersection of race and class? Um, thank you for that question. Um, I think uh, certainly based on this chapter that they are absolutely linked and you can't explore race without exploring class, certainly in this country. Um, so these are constructs certainly around race. We know from biology it is not real. It's a social construct um, constructed for the purpose of oppression and theft, um, being able to take and make uh, on from the labor of individuals without compensating them fairly for it. Yeah. I definitely agree with that, um, especially the piece about theft. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more later on about uh, why we can't talk about racism without talking about classism. So thank you for that. So I'm gonna pass it over to uh, Sir. How might you describe the intersection of class and race? Um, I think both of them are definitely uh, entangled with each other, uh, class and race. As we look through history, a lot of times, uh, race has always been uh, one of the proponents for people to be uh, identified as a lower class, especially in black areas and people of brown and other you know, uh, nationalities. Uh, just with it, I think that it's important to go ahead and try to separate the two so that we can start to move forward with an agenda of trying to you know, better the whole human race as a whole. Well, thank you. Uh, just making a note there about when you said um, they're separate, and Cynthia mentioned that we can't talk about them um, without talking about each other. So I just think that's an interesting point, and we'll come back to that. I'll pass it down to Mackenzie. Um, so how might you describe the intersection of class and race? Um, so I guess kind of piggyback, piggybacking off of Cynthia, um, I do think that they go together, um, and you can't really understand one without understanding the other. So um, that's what I have to say on that. Okay, yeah. And I think it's particularly interesting uh, when you s 
get to what that intersection, what happens at that intersection. I think um, all of you actually alluded to it is that once you get to that intersection, uh, because of the country, the society that we're living in, uh, one, it may already be a pro or con, <laughs> depending on where your, what your status is in the country, uh, and as well as the other. Um, so I'm actually just, I'm wondering, what do you think actually happens at that intersection that makes this such a, uh, important conversation that the author brings up in the book? Um, what happens at that intersection? Um, I think at that intersection, uh, certainly when we're talking about people of color, uh, specifically thinking about the experience of African Americans in this country, um, we see the worst of our capitalism when we also factor in race. Um, so it's unavoidable when we look at that intersection, all of the ways that this idea of capitalism and markets, which should serve us and generate more benefits and wealth for all of us as an idea, um, completely falls apart there. Um, so I think, you know, it's that really glaring space that lets us know um, what our problems are as a culture that is absolutely built around um, capitalism and, and race or racism. Right, yes, I absolutely agree. Um, sir, might, might you add anything to that? What, what do you think happens at the intersection of race and class? Uh, as far as what happens at the intersection there, um, definitely to talk about the capitalism uh, part of it, it's, it's a hard one because we have always seen that with race that capitalism has always gone to exploit those, you know, of the black and brown community. And just with it, you know, I, I know that we've tried, you know, a lot of time throughout history to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps to create our own economy so that we can also profit off of capitalism. But, you know, we've always been knocked down, you know, and in in as you can see in, it, uh, in a Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma with the Greenwood District, you can see in Tallahassee, Florida, what happened. You can see uh, in times of uh, in Arkansas where they had the, the Red River where they had sharecroppers that were trying to you know, say that we need fair market value for our crops that we're producing and they're not getting it. So, you know, all the time throughout history, we've seen capitalism exploit, you know, people of black and brown, you know, origins. Yeah. And, and you actually uh, make a great point. And, and it's interesting to me how um, Dr. Kendi opens up the chapter of class talking about um, his journey, his new beginning that he's embarking on to begin graduate school and moving to North Philadelphia, which in a sense remind me of maybe Jefferson Street or Charlotte Avenue here in Nashville. Um, but he is so excited in a sense when he's first moving um, to his, his place on Broad Street, uh, talking about being able to experience authentic blackness. Um, but then in the end of the chapter, it seems that he comes to another realization, which is that he is no better than the gentrifier. He's no better than the, de the, the developer because he's actually exploiting um, blackness in his mind. So that brings me to my next question, which is uh, when at the intersection of race and class, do you agree that that disproportionately affects black people. Um, if so, might you provide an example of how? I know you all have already alluded to that, um, particularly in this country. So I'm just wondering if you could provide some particular examples of maybe from your personal experience or even from the, um, the text about how that actually plays out in, in life. Anyone? <laughs> well, I'll take that one. Um, I moved here from Arkansas, Russellville, Arkansas, about four years ago. 
and it was me, uh, me and a friend, we both went to the same church. Uh, uh, we were in the same uh, class as far as making money. Uh, I actually had a higher credit score, um, made more money, and we got a loan from the same lending institution at the same time, same week. Uh, I ended up with a higher rate, and he ended up with a lower rate. He was, uh, you know, my white counterpart. So it was interesting to see just that dynamics of, you know, even when you try to do the best that you can, that you still sort of, you know, end up behind the eight ball, you know, as far as trying to get ahead in life. So that's my example of that. Um, I think one of the ways that um, it resonates for me is in thinking about um, black women and our maternal health outcomes. Because uh, time and time again, when we look at that data, we can control for class and education, um, all of those social things that we would assume in a society with um, healthcare available to us would um, indicate that if your resources allow you a good doctor, then you should have a good outcome and a good birth. Um, but again, with those things controlled for, we still see black women uh, dying in childbirth, uh, being ignored, um, acting as if our pain or our discomfort is something that we've created in our mind or is not real or false. Um, so for us in that way, that capitalism and that racism constantly cast us as a non-human entity someone that does not require rights, respect, privileges, opportunity, nurturing, health, growth, um, wellness in any way because it's a non-human entity. So why, what do we do with this thing? So that for me is a very specific example of how we can really see those elements come into play when we look at those health outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's a great example. And you actually uh, make me think about the section of the chapter where um, Abram talks about the word ghetto and the phrase black ghetto and how it's transitioned over time um, to not actually describe the ways in which policies and the system is oppressing black people, but actually becomes a term that is used to describe uh, characteristics of the black community. Um, so I'm just wondering maybe how that resonates with you all. Um, I know for myself when I read it, I thought back to being a child in grade school and joking around and saying, oh, that's ghetto, you know, and the ways in which we are actually perpetuating class racism in our own lives and not actually realizing it. So just wondering how, what's maybe stood out to you all um, around that, what, that term or that section? Um, just as far as that, I think that through our history, we've always grown to embrace, you know, these things that were, you know, deemed negative. And sometimes we do actually, you know, perpetuate the class of it, but we also, us embracing it, we create our own class, like say for me coming from Atlanta, Georgia, you know, out of the, uh, what you would call the hood, we, you know, we took those terms, you know, and we turned it into something else. We try, you know, you take lemons and you make lemonade. So yes, we do perpetuate the class, but we also create something uh, new out of it. You know, so I see it with uh, a lot of my people that's around me that start their music careers, that, you know, start to build in those ways. So we embrace it because it's, it's gonna be there. It's, it's hard to sort of, you know, distance yourself from it because society doesn't allow for you to do that. We see it, you know, every day in, in the news, you know, talk about the ghetto, we talk about, you know, blacks in a negative, you know, way. So we just try to sometimes embrace it because that's the only time, that's the only thing that you can do sometimes when it hurts. Yeah. 
And, and you mentioned um, how we talk about it in a negative way within our own races. And that's something that the author also talks about. Uh, of course, there's the in-between classes comparing white to Asian to black or uh, Latino, but there's also within class, the class racism, uh, which shows up in a sense of um, elite versus not elite or poor. Uh, maybe black elite versus black poor, white elite versus um, white poor, what the author describes as white trash um, in common society language. So I'm wondering if you all have any personal examples um, about how class and race may show up in that sense internally in, in black culture. Mackenzie? Sure. Um, I do find in black culture, if you're not of a certain class, we do tend to treat each other differently. Um, almost as if we're not deserving of the same respect. Even though, you know, we are the same race and a lot of us have the same experiences like coming up. But it's kind of like when we come into some money, um, gain more important titles, the people that we view to be lesser than us are no longer deserving of our respect, even though they are still our people. And why do you think that? I, I just think it's a thing because one, money. So like they say, money is the root of all evil. Uh, money does change people. Um, power changes people. And so I feel like once people reach a certain level, they just, in their mind, they think that they're, you know, they're better than you. So that's my view on it. Would anyone else add to that? Sure. Um, I think again, these ideas of capitalism and racism um, in that they are the fabric of our culture. Um, require that we as black people participate in it a certain way. Um, and so to participate, to survive, to work, to do anything, we are, have that constant awareness of how we are cast. Um, and it continues to try to associate a certain level of value with some forms of humanity versus others. Um, and everybody wants to feel like a complete and total human. Um, and also within that is there's that sense of there's not enough of anything to go around. So when you elevate in class status, you got to keep it and hoard it um, because there's not enough to help everybody else. Or if somebody else comes up with you, there's that inherent sense of competition that is required as well. Um, but again, we internalize those things that we're exposed to over and over and over again. So as you mentioned, we grew up saying something was ghetto, which meant was quote for something was bad. Um, what essentially looking back at it with adult eyes, it means that something was an expression of blackness. Um, something was happening that came out of a survival strategy and survival strategies are always brilliant, you know, brilliantly designed and a, a fact of our humanity. Um, but we have to critique it because no one wants to be the least of us. You know, no one wants to be um, in this, you know, poor and person of color. That's the lowest place you can be because on this hierarchy of what race and class create for us, if we are both poor and of color, we are the least human thing and we get the least of all the resources, if any at all, and we are appropriate to be exploited and we are then deemed appropriate to be used and to have all of our resources and brilliance taken from us. Yeah, you hit on a, several great points. Um, and one point that I want to bring up is 
um, a point that the author makes in the book about black exploitation and films that were created in the 50s, 60s, 70s, which in a sense exploited black culture and the, the parts that might not be uh, as great, the uh, crime, drugs, uh, pimping, you know, those sort of things, they were sort of um, exploited and sensationalized in movies like Shaft, right? So I'm just wondering what were sort of, sort of your reactions um, to black exploitation? Um, I think, so it is like a creative idea um, that also is being birthed out of racism and capitalism happening around us and shaping us. Um, so you have to also think about, you know, Shaft becomes a hero for us. You know, um, even your Dolomites and your pimps, that's a person with wealth and resources who has put a community of humans together to, <laughs> to generate some more income. Um, but that's, that's power, you know, and in the normal world, so to speak, that power may not be accessible in that way. Um, so it's, it's all of those things. Um, but you can't take our heroes away from us, however we choose to find them. And if it's just that, then that's an issue. We know that there are other heroes and other ways that our narratives can be expressed, but um, that was one of them, and that was one of the ones that was acceptable. So it's, it wasn't just, we have to think about financing, you know, who paid for some of those things, you know, who was gonna then distribute it, like how was that gonna get around, and that requires even a black creator to deal in racism and capitalism, um, and so maybe you couldn't sell someone who wasn't a pimp. <laughs> um, so we have to, we can't forget that that's a part of also how, what that final product of our creativity looks like. Certainly, certainly when he talks about um, the, the movie where uh, the African-American man um, is uh, running away or gets away from the police and ultimately goes and lives a life in Mexico happily. Um, I think that it's also just a sense of wanting to see a different story played out um, for our culture. So thanks for that. And I'm going to move on to the next question that I have for you all. And uh, Kende also exerts that anti-racist policies cannot be eliminated or cannot eliminate class racism without anti-capitalist policies. So going back to talking about capitalism and racism and why they cannot be separated or why they cannot be uh, taken away without taking away the other, if anti-capitalism cannot eliminate class racism without anti-racism, what, what do you think we should what, what do you think we should do? And I'm, I'm asking that thinking about our current climate around racism. Um, this year with the Black Lives Matter movement um, really coming to a head, we, I think, have a certain momentum around being anti-racist, but not necessarily around capitalism. Why is that? I'm saying the thing is with it is that capitalism is, that's just part of the fabric of our society, just like racism is itself. In order for us to combat racism, we do definitely have to combat capitalism and the policies that, you know, that affect capitalism. Um, we see it not just here in the United States, we see it in Africa, we see it, you know, in places like the Congo. We have a lot of different case studies that we can go back and we can look at throughout history that shows how capitalism affected racism. You know, so in order for us to affect racism, we do have to, you know, 
implement some policies that change and that makes things more equitable for people that uh, are, are of uh, African descent or you know, black and brown communities. Right, right. And like you mentioned, it's not just here in our nation, it's actually global capitalism that's going on that we need to be addressing. Mackenzie, would you, would you speak to that? Um, I just, I mean, I, I, I agree with sir. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. But just one thing to that, um, like if you go and you look at the uh, United Nations and they have a, a, a treaty and they have some laws that they were writing about the uh, indigenous people's rights, you know, when it comes to that, you go and you look at who voted on, you know, the rights of indigenous people. The United States itself was against it. And this was in, you know, in the early 2000s. So even in today with everything that's going on, you know, we're still not looking to change because in order to change those policies, you have to say that, okay, we were wrong. And in order to say that you're wrong, that means that you have to actually go and have a solution for it. And sometimes the solution, the cost is too high. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to pay that cost. Right. And, and I would agree. And I also say that in the book, um, Abram Kendi talks about how um, we, we do have to begin look, taking an internal look and putting real definitions to things and, and um, speaking to the realness of what needs to actually change for, for those things to happen. And if you are the decision maker, you're probably going to start with the standard being yourself. And I think that's also what's continued to happen in our society, uh, which the author speaks to as well, is that the standard or the the pathology becomes uh, those who are majority in power and that will keep others, it perpetuates what's what's actually going on. So so as we wrap up, I I would ask if there's anything um, that you might leave around the ideas of capitalism, racism, class racism, what might be your takeaway point or um, final thoughts about this topic? I think um, certainly in this climate and the time we find ourselves in, it is a time for radical creativity and action as we think about um, can you repair capitalism Um, if it requires a form of racism or a form of justifying that certain humans are appropriate for providing free labor and being used? Um, How can it ever be a functional system that serves all of us as a beloved community? Um, So we have to be willing to say, what else is there? You know, are there other economies that we can study? Um, Are there other ways of living, thriving, sharing our resources and talents with each other, um, participating in some form of trade, having food and all of the things we need. Um, And I think there are lots of ways that we can think about that, but our radical creativity is essential in fully um, unpacking and taking those things all the way apart to really cast a vision of what we might be able to create that serves us all. Definitely, definitely looking at what else is there that we can be doing. Thank you. Sir? Um, Probably I think we need to go back and uh, look at what role racism and capitalism has played and know how we've actually, you know, black people and the free label that that we've given to the world has actually changed and shaped the world. Um, I know this year a lot of the campaign stuff was talking about uh, retributions and all of that stuff for, you know, past labor that was given but nobody's ever said anything about how to uh, deal with reparations. And just like an idea to just throw out there is like maybe, you know, we're, we're talking about taxes and taxation this year. Why not take, you know, one or 2% of all the United States taxes 
and put that towards reparation to try and build some of these communities that have been, you know, taken. Um, I think that the community definitely needs to gain more control um, because who better understands the community than, you know, people more at the local level. Um, and there's too many people in these higher positions making decisions on the community's behalf without really fully understanding the issues within the community. So, yeah. So uh, what I hear is increasing some of the representation, um, definitely challenging ideas and doing something radical. And I definitely agree that um, because of the situation that we're in today around class racism, and as we've seen demonstrated by the author, this is something that has gone on for centuries now um, and continues to evolve um, into something that has not changed, that is still the ugly head of capitalism and racism. Um, so we, we do need to certainly put um, our ideas, our thoughts into actions and begin changing some of that um, history around class and class racism. So uh, thank you all my panelists today. Thank you for your time and for your um, insight on the chapter of class in the book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Next, next time we'll hope you will join us and we'll be talking about chapter 13, which is space um, and talking about space and how you can be anti-racist in a space. Just Conversations is presented by the Metro Nashville Human Relations Commission. Executive producers Sarah Imran, Mark Etherly, Barbara Gunlardi, and Bob Farrisee. Directed by Cooper Smith and produced by Alex Bennett, Caroline Pace, and Cooper Smith. Special thanks to the Nashville Public Library, Jenna Schmid, and Mark Crowder. For more information and more episodes, visit JustConversations.org. Follow us on Twitter at JustConversate, on Instagram at JustConversaciones, or on Facebook at JustConversate.